maybe seat him. Let me invite you to again turn with me in your copy of God's Word. Uh, this time I invite you to turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew uh, chapter 19, you can find this on page 824 in the Pew Bibles in the rack in front of you. Uh, we come this morning to uh, a rather familiar passage. Uh, it involves a man known as uh, the rich young ruler. He's not always known as the rich young ruler. In Matthew's heading, he's known as the rich young man. Uh, as with most stories in the gospel, there's different versions of it. And so we piece together some different things about him. And we can add these three descriptors. He's rich, he's a young, uh, and he is a man. I'm sorry, he's a ruler. Man here uh, described as a ruler in other places. Probably that means uh, a ruler in the Jewish faith. Uh, some sort of uh, Jewish authority teacher, rabbi, scribe, uh, some sort of ruler. He's introduced to us here in direct contrast to the other young people who were brought to Jesus last week. If you missed last week's sermon, I urge you to go back and listen to it. One of the best sermons that's been preached in this pulpit in a while. Wasn't me. Uh, Go listen to it. Wonderful sermon showing us to be like children. Don't be like the rich young ruler. Okay? So if there's anyone you're supposed to be like, go to the last sermon. (laughs) Be like children. The rich young ruler is set in contrast to children in all of the Gospels. He's particularly shown to us to not have that childlike faith. Follow along with me in Matthew 19, uh, verses 16 to 30. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person Enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit 
on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you go with me in prayer? Our Father, as we come to your word and this teaching this morning, we pray, as we always do, that you would expose the sin of our hearts. But I pray especially that you would do that heart-searching work this hour by the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see the idols that dwell so close in our hearts. Open our understanding to know that those works that so seek to intertwine themselves with our faith and thus decrease your glory and your grace at work in our lives. Lord, I pray in this Moments in these passage in this passage that you would reveal that we are unable to come to you, that we are unable to do any good, that we are desperate and needy sinners hoping only in the finished work of Christ. Show us, O oh Lord, our insufficiency, but so much more. Show us Christ in these few minutes. In his name we pray. Amen. So I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? You've heard that question before, right? You're, some of you are the, the good news people first and some of you are the bad news people first. Me, I always want the bad news first because I'm hoping the good news will somehow counteract the bad news. It, you, it rarely does, right? Maybe some of you are weird and you want the good news first, right? <laughs> You, just want to, you want that to buoy you up, and then maybe you can just walk away before you even hear the bad news. What Jesus gives us in this account is a lot of bad news first. A lot of bad news first. And then he gets us to the good news. That is often the pattern of the gospel. Bad news first, and then good news. Because really the good news isn't really all that good until we understand how bad the bad news is. What I want to show you is these two simple truths, the bad and then the good, in the simplest way possible. And that is this sentence. Man cannot save himself, but God can. You can really leave and go home now. That's all I've got to tell you this morning. I got some more time, have some more notes. But that's what I want you to hear. The simplest truth that if you have been coming to this church for decades, you've heard week in and week out. Man cannot save himself, but God can. The bad news and the good news. Let's walk through this account and see how we learn that. Our outline this morning is going to be following the kids game, two truths and a lie. You've seen this before. Kids get together, they, they say three things about themselves. You have to guess which ones are true, which one's a lie. So I'm going to give you two truths, I'm going to give you a pretty big lie. Tries to get in the way of those truths. You've already heard the truth. Number one, man can't save himself. Number two, but God can. 
Those are our two universal truths I want you to see in our text this morning. And we're going to spend most time on the first one. Man cannot save himself. If you want to take notes, that's verse 16 down to the first half of verse 26. Man cannot save himself. The rich young ruler doesn't know that truth yet. And he's going to have to learn it the hard way. Look how he begins. He comes to Jesus in verse 16. A man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? We have to understand this question before we understand how Jesus answers it. We can go far afield in this account when we misunderstand the question that's being asked. Because Jesus, I believe, for the rest of the passage until Peter speaks, is answering this one question. And the question is, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So, a couple key words in here. What do I do? The man is asking, what must I do to have eternal life? So he understands, as most people do, that this world isn't all there is. That there is an eternal life. That there is a life beyond. There is a life after. And he wants to know how to have it. How to have it here, how to have it then. And his only conception of how to have it is what he does. What he does, and particularly, he he tells Jesus the answer he wants about what he does is not going to be something he believes, not going to be something he repents of, not going to be something he confesses. The answer needs to be a deed. It's something that he, it's a physical activity, a thing that he does, an action that he takes. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus answers and answers it. It's recorded a little bit differently in some of the different uh, gospel accounts. I'm not going to get into that this morning. But he says in verse 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, do you notice he turns around what the word good is describing? So the man is asking for a deed, an action to take that is described as good, not just any old action. Not a bad action, a neutral action, a good deed he can make. And Jesus turns around the question so that the word good is no longer describing the action, the deed, right? The word good is describing the person. Because look how he says, only, essentially, there's only one who is good. Now he's describing God. Some people get a little bit hung up here. Is Jesus saying only God is good, therefore he's not good? That's not at all what he's saying. He's entering this man's question, this man's worldview, and he's pointing to this man. You believe and confess there's only one good, and that is God. And so if you want to be good, if you want to do good deeds, you need to be like God. That's what you're asking. How do I do good things, good deeds, to be like God? There's only one who is good. But then what he's going to do for the rest of the time is he's going to now give the man categories of deeds that he can do to be like God. I want you to picture uh, track meets where an athlete is going over uh, the pole vault or a high jump. And the competition is a bar is put there and everybody tries to jump over the bar until people fail. And then they raise the bar up and they try to jump over it again and they raise it up. And the winner is the last one to jump over that high bar. And in this dialogue back and forth between Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus keeps raising the bar up higher and higher. 
And the guy keeps thinking, I can jump over that. I can jump over that. I can jump over that. He's going to keep raising the bar until finally even the rich young ruler thinks, I can't jump over that bar. What do I do? Let's see how Jesus raises the bar. He answers the man's question. What good deed must I do? It's very simple. At the end of verse 17, you want to enter life? Keep the commandments. That's it. Very simple. Obey. It's the same message that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Do and live. Keep the law. Obey the word and you will live and you will have life. This man wants good works. So what does Jesus do? He gives him good works. You want to find your salvation in what you do? All right. Here's the list. Knock yourself out. Go do all of this and you'll be fine. You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's not changing the subject. He's very specifically staying on task, right? He's answering the man's very specific question. What must I do? What deeds do I do? Do these deeds. They're clearly listed out in the word. Keep the commandments. The man asked, verse 18, which ones? What an odd question. It's almost like he's looking for a secret. I was like, he wants, well, are there special ones? Are there easier ones? Are there something only the rich people can do, right? Could it just be giving alms to the poor and then we're good, right? And so Jesus, he raises that bar, all right? Here, here's some specific commandments to keep. And you kids who have worked on memorizing the Ten Commandments, right? You are recognizing what numbers, look at, look at these again. Think in your head, don't call it out. What numbers of these commandments are? Verse 18, you shall not murder. That's number six. You shall not commit adultery. That's seven. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Those are eight and nine. Honor your father and mother. That goes back to commandment five, right? But Jesus is giving us commandments five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Those are the ones he is to keep. Now, if you can picture the Ten Commandments, and you picture them sort of on two tablets, right? These two stones or two tables, a list of some here, list of some there. And you math people think, well, there's ten of them, so half on one side, half on the other. Five here, five there. Uh, what really is going on is that one table, the first tablet, has the first four commandments that speak vertically of how man and woman relate to their God. And then the next six commandments are five through ten, right, how we relate to one another. So there's sort of the vertical commandments and there's the, the horizontal commandments. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving them what we call the second table of the law. He said, you have to, the, the bar, all right, you want to know which commandments? All the commandments that involve other people. So we can summarize the first table is love God. And Jesus summarizes the second table here at the very end where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's a summary of the whole law, the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor. He emphasizes for this man at this point to love his neighbor. Maybe because those are easier to see. Maybe because you could sort of gauge those in ways that you can't exactly gauge how we're relating with God and keeping the commandments. The man's response, verse 20, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? It does seem like he's looking for something extra, something special. Some extra good deed or something he can do. But let's pause and look at, at the two parts of that. He claims to have kept them all. Now, I, I am glad that some of you laughed at that. All right? Uh, I, all of you should have laughed at that, right? <laughs> he claims to have kept them all. Now, it's actually, 
It's not that crazy. If we could go back to his world for a moment, right? He's young, so he hasn't had that much time to, to break him yet, right? But he's rich, so he can sort of arrange his life and the people that serve him in his world so that he can be ensured that he can keep at least the, the big visible commandments. And he's a ruler, so if he's a leader in the Sadducees or the Pharisees, man, he knows those rules really well, and he's put extra rules around them, and he's lived his whole life very, very, very carefully to never break any of those rules. He probably wasn't there when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and said that we break all these rules internally, right? So there's a chance that he has lived his life in such a way with sort of extreme fastidiousness that all of the outward obvious ways of crossing that boundary into breaking the law, he has kept those. That's unlikely, but in his mind, it is possible. Of all the people Jesus meets, this may be the closest one to keeping all of those commandments. And yet, he still asks Jesus, what do I lack? If we're going to take the most law-abiding person in all of the Gospels, except for Jesus, and even he is not sure if he's done enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Even he lacks Assurance, because he's only looking at what he has done. We can really divide up all of world religions into two categories, right? the category of law-keeping and the category of grace. And this man is squarely in a religion of law-keeping that demands so much from him. To be a Sadducee or a Pharisee in that day, to keep all the external law, it is exhausting. It's like a full-time job just to keep the laws. But do you see how a law-keeping religion gives nothing? Because he still doesn't know if he's there or not. He still wonders, is there something else? I have to do something more, right? The best one of you in this room, by your own law-keeping, will never find certainty or assurance of your salvation. I've done them all, Jesus. What do I still lack? Jesus takes that bar as if to say, all right, well, you're the only one apparently that can jump over that bar, at least in his mind. He raises it one more time. Here's the, here's the, the Olympic gold medal. Here it is. You, you want to beat them all? Here's the final bar. To jump over, rich young man, if you would be perfect, verse 21, go and sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Some people believe that Jesus here is revealing how the man has broken the 10th commandment, that he covets, he's rich. I believe you can be rich without breaking the 10th commandment. This man isn't. He has a deeper problem than coveting. I believe what Jesus is doing here in this question is he's now showing the man, you think you've kept all of the second table of the law to love your neighbor. Okay, you, you can't even keep the first to love the Lord your God. The first commandment to have no other gods before me. This man has a God before God. Jesus is revealing he has broken the first commandment. He can think he's kept the other nine, but he is, Jesus is showing, all right, well, keep the first, the very first, the simplest commandment, have no other gods before me. 
And he reveals to this particular man who his gods are, his money, his possessions, his finances, his riches. We'll come back to that in a minute. But what's going on is this man has finally come to the point where there's a law that he cannot keep. He's finally seen there's a law he cannot keep. Because what he doesn't do is say, okay, I'll sell it all and I'll follow you. No, he has broken the first commandment. He has a God before his God. And so verse 22 tells us he went away sorrowful. You see, Jesus keeps, he keeps raising that bar. He keeps raising that bar. Until finally, even the rich young ruler sees he can't get over it. Skip ahead. Verse 25, the disciples are astonished at this. We're going to come back at riches and what they say about us in a second. But the disciples are astonished that this ruler who's rich must be blessed by God. He's a ruler. He knows how to to do everything right. Even he cannot be saved. Then who can be saved? And Jesus, look at verse 26. For the first time, he's not just talking to them. He looks at them. When Jesus looks at people, it doesn't happen that often in Scripture, but wouldn't you love to see that look? (laughs) Guys, like eyes up here, disciples. Look, with man, this is impossible. With man, salvation, entering the kingdom by keeping the law is impossible. You can't do it. This man is operating under the old rules. He's operating under the old plan, the original plan, back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were told, do and live. Here is the law. Don't eat of that tree. Keep the law and you will live. You will live in peace with God forever. Do and live. It's a religion, we call the covenant of works, in that moment of law. Do and live. They don't. They break the law, sin and death enters the world, and from that point forward, no one, no one can earn entrance into heaven. Somehow, the rich young ruler hasn't yet got the memo, right? He's still operating on the old rules. He's still thinking, it's got to be a law. There's got to be a deed. There has to be something for me to do to enter heaven. And Jesus could have just said, no, there's not. But instead, he shows the man, all right, let's go by those rules. Let's see what you got. Let's see how far you can get. I imagine this interaction like a a coach of a sports team that has a player who thinks they can do everything. Maybe you played with somebody like this. They think they're the superstar. They can score all the points. They don't need their teammates. They don't need to pass. And the coach could tell them, stop doing that and play with your team. Or he could say, fine. Go score all the points. (laughs) Go do everything. And the player's like, this is great in the first quarter. I'm killing it, right? I get all the shots. Game goes on. He gets tired. Coach doesn't take him out. He wants to pass his team. He wants some help from his teammates. Then they pass it right back to him. Fourth quarter comes around. He's exhausted. The team's losing. He's desperate for help. And the coach is saying, do you see? (laughs) You can't do it alone. He breaks him of his independence in order, in the illustration, to trust the team. Here it is in order to trust God. 
Do you see how Jesus, he's, he's crushing this man's independence with the law. He is using the law to crush him. He wants this man to be sorrowful, not to walk away sorrowful, but to come to the end of himself and say, you're right, I can't do it. Because if that's all the bad news, that with man it is impossible, the good news is that with God it is possible. With God, all things are possible. That's not, that's not a verse about sort of, you can do anything and God will protect you, right? You don't jump off a cliff and say, well, God could save me. All things are possible, right? It is possible that he can save in miraculous ways. He does. The context of all things in verse 26 is salvation. With man, salvation is impossible. With God, salvation is possible for everyone, even rich people, which we'll come back to in a second. Here is the danger of misunderstanding the question, the very first question. The danger is we work our way down to verse 21, and we see that Jesus says, go be perfect, and we think, ah, now here's the real answer. We think, all of a sudden, this is now the gospel. But we need to understand verse 21 is still Jesus loading up laws that the man can't do in order to crush him. The gospel doesn't say keep these commandments or keep the top commandment. If you can keep that top one, you're good. Now, Jesus knows, as we know, we can't keep them. The best of us can't keep them. There's a danger of reading that final verse as him just telling us, go do something better. (laughs) Go do more works. Go be more. I know you're sort of giving away to God, but give everything to God. Be more serious. Be more committed. Be more devoted. Try harder to be a good Christian. And that's the gospel, right? No. He continues to crush even the greatest among us so that we all know that God alone saves. Only God can save. And only God does save. Because here's the truth of these these verses is that there is one who is good and there is one who is perfect and there is one who can keep all of these laws, every single one of these laws. You see, God has sent Jesus to keep this very law, the very law that every one of us is incapable of keeping. He has sent Jesus himself to keep it, every one of the commandments. In thought, word, and deed, he keeps every one of them. And by keeping the law, he alone is perfect. He alone is righteous. You know what he does with that righteousness? He gives it to us. He doesn't say, I'm righteous now. You got to be really extra righteous. Now he knows none of us get up there, but he does. And then he gifts us. He exchanges with us. He takes our dirty rags and gives us his sparkling white garment so that we stand before the throne of God. Perfect. Not because we're extra special good Christians. Because we've broken all of the laws, but Jesus has clothed us in the righteousness that he has earned. We don't go away sorrowing because we can't do enough. We go away rejoicing because he did everything. And it's ours by faith in Christ alone. You've heard... 
a guest preacher here a number of times, Andrew Shank. He's the RUF minister at uh, Western Carolina University. And he, last time he was here, had this wonderful illustration of how the law works. And he described God's law like a mirror. And we look in the law like this man does, and it should show us how needy we are. He says, imagine coming off, off a, a long day of work, working in the yard, you're covered in dirt and grass clippings and sweat, just a total mess. And you look in the mirror, and you think, man, I'm filthy. Well, that's what the law does. It says, man, you are filthy. <laughs> you think, all right, well, let me just wipe off a little bit. And you look back in the mirror, still filthy, right? <laughs> you take a washcloth and try to get a little bit, look back at the law, still filthy. So you think, all right, well, maybe the law will help clean it up. And you take the mirror off the wall, and you start to bathe yourself with the mirror, right? This mirror is going to wipe away all my dirt. <laughs> right? That's silly, right? That's what we do. And we think, well, let me get some law and do some more law. That'll make me, myself clean. Let me just do a little bit better. Now, what does the mirror tell you? The mirror says, man, go get in the shower, right? <laughs> That's where you're supposed to get cleaned. That's what the law says. Don't come to me to get clean. Go to Jesus. He cleanses us. We mess up what he's saying between law and gospel, and we are led astray to an unending religion of work, 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 and no assurance. You keep asking, what else do I lack? John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this little poem comparing the law and the gospel. This little couplet, it begins, Run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Doesn't help us. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law says do it, but doesn't help us. The gospel says it's done and gives us everything. Jesus says to the man and he says to you and me, stop doing and start resting. Stop doing so much and rest in the one who has done it all. The law says do. The gospel says it's done. Now, if you're like the disciples, and if you're like Peter, you may be thinking, this is too good to be true. And here's where we need to hit our final point, and that's the lie. Two truths. Man can't do it. God does it. The lie well, maybe God needs a little bit of my help, right? The lie is we add some works back in to the grace of the gospel. The lie is, sure, pastor, that's the door I came in, but now I've been a Christian for 10 years, and I think my works are actually needed. I need to add them back in. They're, they're important to how I'm saved. Jesus exposes this lie by showing us two stumbling blocks. We'll just hit these briefly. The stumbling block of understanding the gospel, stumbling block number one is success. <laughs> stumbling block number two is sacrifice. In either of these ways, either of these sides right, uh, uh, of, the, of the extreme, we can deny a gospel of grace. Number one stumbling block is success. Verses 22 down to 25, the man going away sorrowful. What's going on in these verses is that in the world, then and now, there is this belief that success testifies to blessing. And success testifies to righteousness. That successful people have somehow done something right. And this man is rich, so he must have done something right. 
He is rich and blessed in this world, so he is right. He is even righteous. You don't think this happens today? Look at how much we listen to celebrities for our morality, right? It's a joke. We think because they're successful at something, they, they sort of are successful at everything. That's the mindset. That's why the disciples are so shocked that the rich man can't enter heaven because richness means he's been blessed. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter heaven. This metaphor, the biggest animal of the day, a camel, and the smallest opening of the day, right? The eye of a needle. It's not a gate in Jerusalem. It's the actual eye of a needle. Camels don't go through eyes of needles. But it's easier for that to happen than a rich person to enter heaven. Why is that? Well, in verse 22, we see the man went away sorrowful for or because he had great possessions. His possessions, his success, his supposed blessing and righteousness in this life was in fact a stumbling block to the gospel of free grace. He could have said, Man, I'm so glad it doesn't count on my riches. <laughs> I'll gladly follow you, Jesus. You see, riches can become our God, can't they? You don't have to be rich for your riches to become your God. <laughs> you don't have to be wealthy for money to become your God. You don't have to be land rich for possessions uh, to become your God. But even deeper, the problem here, I think, with this man and the problem with us is that riches often, dis they disguise our need for God. It's not that money's evil. It's not that land's evil. Those things are not evil. But they disguise, they mask our need for the true God. We read in Proverbs 30, verse 7, Give me neither poverty nor riches. What's the problem with riches? I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? I know many of you have testified to me that when you, you, have de, you have depended the most on the Lord when things have been taken away from you. I mean, look at the seasons of your life. When have you sensed the most dependence that you've had on the Lord? It's often, not always, of course, but it's often seasons of want, seasons of need. Because success and riches and wealth can blind us that we are still filthy sinners in need of the grace of God. You see, this is what success does. It lures us. It tempts us to say, look at me and not at Jesus. Look at my riches. Look at my work. Look at my, uh, my good deeds and not at Jesus. That is a stumbling block, dear friends, a big one, to the gospel of grace alone. The second stumbling block, though, is a little more subtle and maybe a little harder to spot. But it comes in Peter's question to Jesus in verses 27 to 30. And here's the stumbling block of sacrifice. If having everything can be a stumbling block, well, then maybe we're safe if we have nothing, right? Look what Peter says. Look at his question. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, I have trouble reading that because I don't entirely know uh, what Peter's motivation is behind that question. I've seen a couple options. One is that he's motivated by greed. So the rich person got what he got in this life and nothing in the next. Okay, wow, what am I going to get in the next? If I sacrifice so much, what's coming to me, Jesus? What's coming to us? 
I think there might be some greed in that question. I also think there might be some pity, some self-pity in the question. Where Peter is saying to Jesus, wait a second, if works don't count, why have we left everything? Right? Why have we done these good works if they don't count? What's the point? One preacher says, if we're not careful, we can successfully avoid the idol of money only to find ourselves with the new idol of self-congratulation. Right? We're trying so hard. Don't idolize money. Don't idolize money. Give it up. Give it up. Give it up. And then we find ourselves over here full of pride. <laughs> we find ourselves like Martha. Well, they're not serving Jesus. I'm the servant. I've sacrificed to serve you. You see how insidious our hearts are? We're going to find works anywhere to throw them back into the gospel of grace so that we get a little credit. Jesus answers them as he often does with grace. He gives grace to what I believe to be an ungracious question coming from, the, from Peter as representative. He tells them, though there will be a new world, there will be a new world. And in the new world, in the new creation, when all is set right, when all wrongs are righted, when all of the unrighteous are punished, and all of the ones who believe in Christ find their reward, look at the blessings there. And he shows us grace. He says blessings will far exceed the sacrifices in the new world. What a, what a promise we can all hold on to, even if our sacrifice is a little selfishly motivated sometimes. The 12 Disciples will sit on the 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes. It's unclear if this is symbolic. The 12 disciples symbolizing all of the church. Uh, is this literal? Is this figurative? Whatever it is, it's an, it's an exalted place in the new heavens and the new earth. And everyone, 12, disciple, 12 apostles are not, have the blessing of receiving a hundredfold and inheriting eternal life. Now there I think there's more questions here, even after that brief explanation. But one thing that's very clear is that we will see, everyone will see, rich and unearned blessings in heaven. That there are, whether we sacrifice a little bit or a lot, whether we have a little money or a lot of money, those works on either side, they don't count. It is Christ and Christ alone. And he gives and he showers and he blesses with all riches. And look at verse 30. Look how it ends. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think, and we'll see this next week because the parable of the labor in the vineyards is an exact explanation of these words. But I think Jesus is subtly rebuking Peter. I think Peter said, man, I'm first in sacrifice for you, right? I'm the most humble one, right? I'm the best poor person, right? So I'm now at the front of the line. And we get this subtle rebuke from the ones who take pride in their humility, pride in their poverty, pride in their sacrifice. Because you know what sacrifice, the allure of sacrifice, the temptation of sacrifice is? He says, look at me and not Jesus. What does success say? Look at your works and not Jesus. What does sacrifice say? Look at your works. And not Jesus. John Calvin said the human heart is like an idol factory. We just keep pumping them out, right? Jesus knocks one out, we pump out another one. We flee one into the arms of another. 
these stumbling blocks, success or sacrifice, they're just different versions of works. This just works righteousness we bring back in. It's not a form of idols we're bringing back in to the free grace of the gospel. Where works count as nothing. Where righteousness counts as nothing. Only the righteousness of Christ. So what's our question? How do I enter eternal life? He says to you this morning, it's easy. Just keep the commandments. I wonder if you're thinking, okay, I can do that. I'll try a little harder. It's been a rough week, but I'm going to get up Monday morning, 8 o'clock. It's commandment keeping time, right? This is going to be the week. You laugh, but you're there, right? I'll just try a little harder. Or you say, man, I actually can't do that, pastor. I'm out. That's what he said. He left sorrowful. That's the worst part of the story. He's supposed to be sorrowful. I'm, gr- I'm glad he's crushed. What is he leaving for? Go to Jesus and say, I can't do it after all. I need help. I need you. What you wish he would say is, I can't do this. I can't keep the law. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Y'all, the bad news is, with man, salvation is impossible. The good news, with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Our Lord, you have opened wide the kingdom of heaven that we can all come in. Lord, how foolish are we standing on the doorstep trying to work harder to enter the doors that have already been flung open. Lord, I pray that you would burden people this very morning who have for years or decades resisted your son to finally lay it all down, to let go of every idol, to let go of every work they're trying to do to earn your love. And embrace Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel. And I pray for every one of us, O oh God. We of idol-making hearts. We who find ways to smuggle works back into a gospel of grace. Set us free this morning. Free us from what else do I need to do? Free us from asking for extra special commandments. Free us, O God, from even looking at ourselves and set our eyes on Christ, the perfect law keeper, the giver of eternal and everlasting righteousness. Root our trust in him and him alone, we pray this day and always. Amen.